This morning's readings are from Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Okay, so I'd love to talk to you today about what the cross does to us. So previous weeks, last week we thought about what the cross does for us, and then the week before that what the cross shows us, but today what the cross does to us. And I want to show you how the cross actually changes us and acts upon us and what that means for our lives. And to do this, just want to focus on a single verse today, um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. And it's, it's there in your booklet, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, you should always be suspicious of a preacher who just wants to preach on one verse because it's so easy to take it out of context and make it mean what you want it to mean. So very briefly, just uh, how does this fit in with the letter to the Galatians? Well, Paul is writing to churches in a region. He's trying to persuade them that Jesus is enough for them, that they don't need anything more than Jesus, than trusting in Jesus. But some people have been coming and preaching that uh, these people who used to be Gentiles, used to be pagans, worshipping the pagan gods, who've become Christians, that they now need to take on themselves the law of Moses, the law in the Old Testament, and they need to do that in order to be confident that they're right with God and acceptable in God's sight. Um, And the sort of uh, immediate issue there is that the men should become circumcised as a sign that they're going to obey the law of Moses. And uh, Paul is saying, no, do not have to do that. Jesus is enough. And at this point in the letter, he actually talks about the motives of these people who've been preaching this message to them, this very unhelpful, false message. Um, and he says two things about their motives. First of all, that they're doing it so that they don't, ha- don't get persecuted, so that they can say uh, to the other Jews living in these places, oh, look, we're, we, we're just persuading people to, become, uh, to, to obey the law of Moses. So these people who've become Christians, we're getting them to become real Jews and so, so that the, the other Jews w- wouldn't persecute them. So they're doing it to avoid persecution. And the second thing that he says is that they're doing it in order uh, to be able to boast about you. They're doing it in order to make themselves feel important and good. 
And when you think about it, this, you know, this would be a cause of boasting if you were able to persuade someone to take on the law of Moses. But in particular, if you were able to persuade the men to go through this extremely painful you know, operation, um, then that would be something to boast about. Wow, my, my powers of persuasion are really impressive. I was able to persuade uh, these people to go through this. And so Paul uh, says, no, that's, that's their motivation. That's unhelpful. And he talks about uh, his own attitude and motivation in that verse. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Paul boast in the cross? What would it mean to boast? We're talking about boasting or some translations say glorying. This is the thing that you really think is fantastic, the thing you care about, the thing you rejoice in, the thing you celebrate. Uh, what is Paul's boasting about? His glorying, it's about the cross of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross. And why boast in the cross? Why would someone do that? Well, that's what we've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks, actually. Uh, we boast in the cross because of what the cross achieves for us. That when Jesus died on the cross, he did it as, uh, as a substitute. That he did it as our representative. He did it in our place and for our sake. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us and through that he has made us right with God through that he's 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 bought the forgiveness of our sins through that he's purchased us for God through that he has qualified us to belong to God's kingdom he's rescued us from darkness he's transferred us into the kingdom of his son he's made us clean in God's sight he's made us beautiful in God's sight he's made us holy to God he's put us right with God. He's made it possible for us to be adopted as God's children. Those are the things we talked about last week. This is a reason to glory in the cross because of what Jesus has achieved for us through that. But we also glory in the cross because of what the cross shows us, the way the cross shows us that God loves us and that God loves us in a self-giving, self-sacrificing, serving way, that God is rich in mercy. We boast in the cross because it shows us a God who is great to know and belong to. These are reasons for boasting in the cross. And we know, I think, that boasting in ourselves is not good. Uh, in some ways, this is the result of the influence of the gospel. Um, in the ancient world, boasting about yourself was completely fine, uh, but these days it's not, we know it's not great. Um, but here we have someone boasting in someone else and what they've done, which I guess we, you know, we know instinctively that's, that's healthier. Um, what's the dynamic here? Uh, you might know, you might have heard of the Bledisloe Cup. Have you heard of the Bledisloe Cup? It's the name of the trophy that Australia and New Zealand play for when in rugby. So the All Blacks against the Wallabies. And this trophy has been around for about... Uh, 90 years and it's been pl they've played for it 70 times no that's not right 62 62 times in those years these these days it's every year and new zealand pretty much always win right they've won it 50 times australia has won it 12 times um in uh, 1992 uh new zealand had won the last five years before australia the wallabies finally won and at that time, I was a teacher in a private school in Sydney, a boys' school. 
and it was a rugby school. Uh, most of the boys played rugby. Rugby was deeply part of the school culture. They, they, most of them played and they, because they wanted to. And they knew a lot about the game and they cared about the game. And uh, so one day at assembly, all, all you know, over a thousand boys gathered in one room and all the teachers and everything, the school captain gets up and he says, men of the school, this is the way they used to talk, men of the school, <laughs> like 12-year-old men, but anyway, uh, I've got something to, sh to, to uh, show you today. And we've got a couple of special visitors and they've got something to show you. And out onto the stage walk two very recognisable wallabies and between them carrying the Bledisloe Cup. And it's a really big, it's an impressive trophy, really huge silver cup and that takes two people to carry it. And they're carrying it between, they bring it out and there is a spontaneous acclamation. The boys are clapping and cheering and yelling and stomping their feet. It's, a, it's an ovation that goes for about... This is not orchestrated in any way. A totally spontaneous response to them showing off the cup. They were glorying in what had been achieved. And they had not done it, but it had been done on their behalf. That when, you know, our, our Australian teams represent us, and they really felt it, they really saw that, and they gloried in what had been done for them. And Paul's saying that he glories in what has been done for him. But it's not when the Wallabies play, it's not really personal. I don't, don't think that, you know, you would, even if you're a rugby fan, it's not usually a personal connection. Um, once, uh, when Beck and I started going out, um, she, I went along to an Estedford. Um, and uh, I, haven't to, I haven't told her I'm going to tell, tell this. We went, went to an Estedford, you know, which is a music... I didn't know what it was. It's apparently a music competition uh, where, you, you know, various people perform um, and they get, you know, feedback and, and so on. They award prizes. Um, so Beck was, had been training as a classical singer and uh, I went along, and I hadn't ever heard her... I mean, I heard her sing, but I had never heard her sing any, you know, any, anything from the classical repertoire. And uh, she sang this song uh, from an opera, a light opera called Deflator Mouse. It's called The Laughing Song. I don't know if you know The Laughing Song, but it's a terrific song of, uh, where a woman um, who's pre pretending to be a, a noble woman, she's really just a servant, uh, gets caught out. Someone accuses her of you know, being an imposter. And uh, the song is about her trying to deflect the embarrassment of this. Anyway, and it's the song's got laughing in it. Anyway, Beck gets up and uh, starts to perform the song and she just totally nailed it, right? She nailed this song. Um, and not just, the, not just the vocal, right, but she, she just inhabited the role. Like, you could feel the social embarrassment um, as she sang, like she totally took on the character. It was brilliant. It was so brilliant. And everyone, know, everyone knew it was brilliant, right? Everyone, the crowd, everyone could see how good she was, right? But I was the only person there who was her boyfriend, right? <laughs> I was the only one. Uh, I, this is how I felt so proud of her. I felt so proud. And because it was personal, that, that's my girlfriend. That, that woman who... That woman who just performed that incredible song, that's my girlfriend, right? <laughs> I know her and she knows me and yeah, 
So that, that is the personal connection that Paul is talking about here. That when we think about Jesus and how he died for us, it's uh, not just, oh, that's an objective kind of fact out there. No, he, he went through that suffering for me. And I, I know him. I know him. And he knows me. He knows me. He knows his sheep and he calls them by name. That glorying the cross is glorying because you know that Jesus who died for you and suffered in that way so that you could be forgiven and belong to God. That's what it's, that's what it's about, to glory in the cross. To say that he did that for me and I glory in that. And the more you glory in him, uh, the less you'll glory in yourself. The more you glory in him, the less actually you will be preoccupied with yourself and your own place in the world. That's what Paul goes on to say. It's glorying in something done for you on your behalf. Because look at the way that Paul applies it here. Um, He goes on to say, he says, May I never glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says that there are actually three crucifixions that have happened. There's Jesus' crucifixion and then two more crucifixions. One literal, I guess, uh, but two that are real but not literal in the same way. That because we're joined to Jesus by faith, when we put our trust in him, uh, this becomes true of us. The world has been crucified to us and us to the world. So let me just remind you a little bit about what the world is. We've talked about this in previous weeks. The world is um, in the Bible, a way of speaking about human, all of human life as it's normally lived, um, that all the patterns and culture and uh, all the ways that human beings just tend to do things is the world. And we've seen that that world is in some ways dominated by spiritual evil, held in captivity by spiritual evil, and that that world, the world is also against God. Deep down, it's against God. That it comes out in the, in the story of the cross that given the opportunity, the world reacts to God by trying to kill God. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're talking about here, the world. So Paul says that the world has been crucified to him. Um, what is that about? That now the relationship he has with the world has been totally changed because he because he, uh, sorry, the world has been crucified to him. He no longer is part of the world. He's no longer in the world. Uh, Sorry, he's no longer part of the world. He's in the world, but he's not of the world, is the way that Jesus talks about it. Uh, The world has now been cancelled. The world has now been crossed out. And all the patterns and expectations and values and ways of the world no longer apply to Paul. They no longer apply to someone who has put their trust in Jesus because the world has been crucified to them. This refers to sin, of course, but goes further and deeper than that as well, that we're no longer bound by those patterns and expectations and fears and desires and false gods which drive human life as it's normally lived. We are set free from those things because they have been crucified to us. So what looks impressive in the world no longer impresses us. What is valued in the world 
we no longer have to value. What people worry about and are anxious about, we don't have to obsess over. And in some ways, that is a painful thing, that the world is crucified to us. It's hard to let go of it in lots of ways, but it's also actually, ultimately, great freedom. Great freedom that the world no longer has its hold on us. And so, Apostle John can say to us, do not love the world or anything in the world. Jesus says that we are not of the world, even as he is not of the world. What about when Paul goes on to say that we, that we have been crucified to the world? What does that mean? Well, he, what he means is that the world will now regard you as crucified. The world will, will regard you as cancelled, as crossed out, uh, because you belong to Jesus and he is your Lord and Saviour and will tend to treat you in the same way as it treated Jesus himself. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So actually, it's just right that we expect to be rejected. That uh, we, And we don't, therefore don't place our hopes in any kind of worldly recognition. We, have a very, we, we need to have a very light attitude um, to our place in the world. And this is hard for us. We really care about our position in the world. We really care about the opinion of others. We really care about our careers and our professions and our friendships. And the idea that we might be cancelled uh, in this way is really hard for us to hear. But Paul says, and Jesus teaches, that this is actually normal for, for, for those following Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this old war movie called 12 O'Clock High. 12 O'Clock High, 1959, so we're talking pretty, pretty old now. And it's not even really an action movie, it's not a fighting movie, it's just a drama. It's a, it's a drama set during the war. Among these, these air crews, these bomber crews, and so set, sort of set in 1942, and the Americans based in England, they're flying over into occupied Europe and bombing targets in order to take the war to the Nazis. And it's a very fraught situation. They, lots of planes get shot down, lots of, uh, of the air crew get injured in the raids. There's a high casualty rate, and they just know the more missions they do, the more likely they are to die. In fact, they can do the maths and work out that it's only a matter of time. So you can imagine the terrible stress that they're under. And so this, it's about this one squadron. The people are just losing it. They're losing the will to fight. The commander is, kind of loses it, and uh, he's so upset about the losses among his men. And so they send in a new commander. This is played by Gregory Peck. I don't know if you know Gregory Peck, but he's this kind of old-style movie star who used to play, uh, you know, very upright heroes, right? He played Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird and that kind of thing. Uh, a very upright guy, and he comes in as the commander. To these men who are really struggling, he does not in any way try to comfort or encourage them. He's just really tough with them. So he just enforces discipline totally at the beginning, and then he, has a, he, he gets them, gathers them all and he speaks to them all. And uh, this is his speech. He, say, he says to them, look, you've been, you've been feeling sorry for yourselves, but we've got a war to fight, so we're not going to have any of that. <laughs> Uh, and he says, but actually, it goes much, it goes, it's worse than that. It goes much worse than that. The problem is, you're, you, you're all thinking about what you might do if you survive this war. You're thinking about what you might do if you 
come through this. He says, you have to stop making plans. You should consider yourselves already dead. And he walks out. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Anyway, it's a very human story. actually follows his story through. And yeah, but I won't spoil it for you. You can might watch it one day. 90, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. Consider yourselves already. Now, Paul here said, doesn't say consider. He says, you are already dead to the world and the world to you. If you belong to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you are already dead. And that actually does give you freedom. It does give you freedom. That, you, that actually anything you get from the world uh, is a, just a bonus now, rather than something you deserve or something you expect. Uh, we can live a free life as followers of Jesus without worrying about what the world thinks uh, and without an expectation that the world will treat us well. We can live that life with confidence because we re- know and regard ourselves as already dead because of Jesus and his cross. But actually knowing that this is the way to true life and real life with God and that Jesus has conquered the world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Uh, We give you thanks, our Heavenly Father, so much again for Jesus and his cross and his death for us. And we pray that you would help us to just glory and boast more and more in what he has done and that we know him and that he knows us. And as we glory in the cross, uh, please give us that experience of true freedom. uh, Freedom to know and love and serve you and one another in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.